The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, as one of those lines in that song implied, we, we can call you Father, but we also have the privilege of calling you something more intimate. We call you Dad. A personal address. You, you are Father. You are God Almighty. You are King. And you are our Dad. Because Christ died and rose again on our behalf. We say thank you for that. And now we have a chance to think a little more and a little more deeply about what it is that he's provided for us. And I pray that you would open our eyes and show us the scripture here this morning. Use this time to, to teach us and also to encourage us, to build us up and move us in heart after you. Spirit of God, would you have your way in this room here now and, and calm all distractions in our hearts and, and in, in the atmosphere and just... Enable us to, to meet you. Draw near and meet us and teach us. Build up your people. Call people into your family. Save and glorify your name. That's our prayer. Do that this morning, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Closing statements often carry special weight. That's how I began last week's sermon about 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 to 21, the closing statement of that letter that Paul wrote to Timothy and the whole church there in Ephesus. And the point I was trying to make there is one that we all understand. When you have time to give it some thought, the last thing you choose to say usually is pretty deliberate and pretty meaningful. It's true if you're closing out a handwritten letter. It's even more true if you're knowingly closing out your life. And that's the situation we find in the book of 2 Timothy. It's just one page over in our English Bibles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. But in fact, three or four years separate these two books. And over that time, Paul's situation has changed dramatically. He wrote 1 Timothy in the early 60s A.D., and he was traveling at that time freely, ministering to, teaching, and encouraging many different people in many different churches in many different cities in what is modern-day Turkey and Greece. And he expected to come back to the city of Ephesus and to help put some order to the church there as it was facing some difficulties. But in, until he did, he wrote to Timothy, who was the pastor left there, and gave him some instruction about how to structure the church. So as we noticed in 1 Timothy, there's a whole bunch there about the corporate church, the, the whole body, how it is to be, how it's supposed to function, how it's structured. But by the middle of the 60s, Paul had been arrested again for preaching about Jesus and was in prison in Rome, and he'd been through enough of the court proceedings that he knew it was coming. He knew he was about to be executed and so now, with the finish line of his life in sight, this whole letter is one large closing statement, 2 Timothy. 
a carefully thought out message that he wants to deliver to his dear friend, this younger apprentice that he loves like a son, this, this man, Timothy. And so it's very personal, very intimate and very personal. Now, the address, the, the opening addresses we'll see where Paul describes who he is reveals that he knows other people are going to read this. So it's not only to Timothy, it, it's to the church, but it's particularly to Timothy, it's particularly personal, very intimate. And so there's little here about the church as a whole. First Timothy had a lot of that, Second Timothy has almost none of it. It's all about one man speaking to another. He wants to focus on the individual, on, on Timothy, and then indirectly on every Christian who's going to read this, call and challenging, calling and challenging us to take up his mantle of suffering as a servant of the gospel, living to announce God's promised life in Christ. That's what's here. And being so direct and challenging and personal, that's made 2 Timothy a favorite of a lot of people. It's one of my favorite books. It's short. I actually first encountered this in college when I became a Christian. I was challenged to memorize the whole book. It's doable. It's not that long. And it became kind of special to me. And maybe it'll become that for you as we spend some time in it now. But we're beginning just this morning with verses 1 and 2, the introduction. And like many letters, it begins in a typical way. It begins with from, to, and a greeting. Paul uses that standard format, but like always, he puts a little more into it and turns it a little bit and begins to teach right off. And the setup here of this introduction tells us something about what the letter is about and what he has most in view here at the end. So with that, let me read the introduction. This is verses 1 and 2, and then I'll draw out two observations from it. Beginning in 2 Timothy 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the introduction. Two observations, and here's the first. It's a little bit longer than the second one. God gives life in Christ, and he wants the world to know it. God gives life in Christ, and he wants the world to know it. Verse 1 tells us not just who the letter's from, but why we should listen. As Paul is not just a Roman criminal on death row, he is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word from which we get the English word apostle was not a special religious word. It was a common word. It just meant one sent with a message, like an emissary or a delegate of some sort, common word. So to say an apostle of Christ Jesus means one sent from Jesus with a message from Jesus as his representative spokesman. According to the Bible, then, the apostles of Jesus... This is how the Bible, people use the word apostle in all kinds of different ways, but the Bible means by apostle is someone who was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, of his teaching, and of his resurrection. This was essential because that's what they were to be spokesmen about. They were to go out, they were sent out to say, I saw him do this, I heard him teach that, 
I heard him preach about this. I saw him crucified and I saw him alive again. It had to be eyewitnesses. That's what an apostle is, according to the Bible. And so Paul's an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Not by the will of Paul himself. Paul did not volunteer for this. In fact, this is pretty ironic. Because Paul was an eyewitness of Jesus' teaching in life and, and death and resurrection, all while being a strident enemy of Jesus and then a persecutor of his followers. He saw it all, but he did not believe. He, 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 was, he was an enemy. So you, you know the story. It's in the book of Acts. We can, you can read it there. But the point is that Paul himself did not pick this life for himself. He wanted nothing to do with it nor did any group of other men or some like church counselor or a group of people select him. They were all fleeing from him in fear. Every group of Christians around Paul ran. Nobody selected him to be a leader. Nobody but God. God had another plan. It was the will of God, it says here, to first save Paul, open his eyes, to show him who Jesus really was. This is what's always going on. When, when any person is, becomes a Christian, is saved in this sense, what happens is that God opens eyes and causes the person to see what's right in front of him all along. Paul saw and heard Jesus but did not see him. And then God intervened and opened his eyes. This is, this is how God saves, but he did it for Paul in particular because he had a special purpose for Paul, to make him an apostle. And so Christ appeared to Paul, and Paul saw him for the first time, really saw him and heard him for the first time, and was changed by him. Again, this is in the book of Acts, and, and if, if you're a Christian, you've been around church for some period of time, you know this story. It, it's here, it touched on lots of different ways and lots of different letters, told in detail in other places. Why? Why bother going into this? Why mention it again? To remind us, to kind of put a marker here at the very beginning, that what we are reading or hearing, if you're hearing it read, is, is not the teachings that some guy or some guys thought would be good to pass on. This isn't a collection of, of human choice words or, or select doctrines. He wants to remind us that this letter is coming to us because God deliberately decided and acted in a specific way to raise up a specific spokesman with this message for you. God miraculously saved Paul. You've got, you got to put yourself in front of this and say, way back on the road to Damascus, when God intervened in Paul's life, knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and then opened his eyes, that was for this moment right now for you. By the will of God, he made Paul an apostle gave Paul his word 
and cause it to come to right now. Because very literally, God has a word for you. He wants you and all the world to know this message. And so he raised up an emissary and sent him out to proclaim it, to speak it, and then to write it down so that it would be preserved accurately and carefully passed on down to this moment right here. What's the message? Here we come to the heart of the matter. His authoritative spokesmanship Paul's authoritative spokesmanship is about a great promise made long ago and kept. You stand here in front of God and you receive from God through Paul God's message for you and it's important then to realize, oh, this is, this is news about a promise made and kept. This is not a recipe about what I'm supposed to do. Oh, now, sure, there's a lot in the Bible in the form of command. Do this and do that and don't do this and do that. For sure, yeah, absolutely. But that all rests on something else. That's not the foundation. The heart of what this book is about, the heart of what this faith is about is a promise made and kept by God for us. That then means we should live and act in certain ways. Subsequently, not the other way around. This is about a promise. He's making, God intends, and then God did intend to make and then give life. And then he wants it announced to everyone so that everyone would hear it, know it, and receive it. For your joy. A life, a spiritual life, a heart level life that most living people don't know. A life of human experience, and let me try to describe it like this that is a quality of existence characterized by profound rest within that feels like deep-seated contentment and wholeness. I'm going to describe it in different layers here. It feels like deep-seated content, whole. It's, it's right. It's consistent. It's substantial. It's real. It's human in the best, fullest sense. And it is that, and it feels like that. It feels content and whole because, second level, it's rooted in and then walking in what is true and right and pure and holy and just. And it's rooted in what's pure and right and holy and just, and it walks in that because that's what has become delightful. Not some sort of, of yoke laid on from above, but, but out of the inside, it's like, oh, that is good and right. Justice is appropriate and right, and beauty is appropriate and right. And 
ah, oh, yes, and it, it steps into that. It stands on it and then walks out into it because that's what's become most attractive within. So that type of multi-layered life, that, that's my attempt to describe this life, it's the type of existence we are made for, that we long for, that we're constantly chasing after, that we want. It's the place we all flourish. It's what it is to be truly human. It's what we're restless in search of until we find. And unfortunately, we can't ever find it. It's like going, and you grab it, you catch a little bit of it, and it's gone. It's like trying to hold on to water in your hands. You can hold a little bit of it, but it's constantly running out, and in time, hands are dry again. And that's because this life that I attempted to describe there, and you can kind of feel it. If the words don't quite resonate with you, you kind of feel what I'm getting at, that a life that's whole and right and, and just and good. That heart-level good life is the life of communion with God. Of knowing God. Personally. And intimately. To know God in love. Love. Constantly, abidingly. The life of fellowship with the living God. Not the life of just purely following the commandments of God, but the life of fellowship, with, of communing with Him, of knowing Him. You know the difference, right? Stand opposite a person and do what they say or relate to them. There's a difference there, a big difference there. You can follow what he says and not know him at all. But if you know a person, he or she changes you, affects you. To know and commune with the living God, that is the only place this life is found. To know him like a friend, to live with him like a, a brother. And we miss it. This is the essence of the Old Testament traced out for us. And this is how the Old Testament is the book of promise. Still working off that word promise there in verse 1. You can catch the sketch of this life that I've been trying to describe here. You can, you can see it there in, in the Bible in, in different ways. You, you can see it in glimpses, in passages, in parts of people's lives, or in little pictures of the community. You can see it in metaphors. Think of this one. Think of Psalm 1. The first psalm on purpose. Psalm 1 pictures a tree planted by a stream of living water in the midst of a desert. And everything else around it dies, parched, but the tree flourishes. Why? Because it's attached to the water. And it's life amidst barrenness. We see the image there and you get it. That, that's, that's another attempt to depict the life. This is what life is like connected to the living water, connected to God, communing with him. We see that, but then we see over and over and over again throughout the whole story that it tells us that we don't stick by the water. We're like a tree that pulls up our roots and moves away. 
We, we, just, we don't stay there. We can't stay there. We are sinners in heart and mind, and it is in us to wander and to turn away. And then moving away from the water, without water, we don't have life and we die. That's God's right judgment against us because of our sin. Our departing from it is not an accident. It's willful. We all turn away from him, and so his right judgment on us is spiritual death, separation from God, from the relationship with him that would produce this life. And so the Old Testament is a book of promise in this way. It shows us in in words and in images and, and in metaphors, it shows us here's what life of flourishing life looks like, and you can't get it because you're constantly wandering away from him. I'm a stream of living water, and you picked up your roots and ran into the wilderness again and again. And death follows again and again. And you can't ever stay here because it's not in your heart to stay here. You want to go your own way. Oh, but I promise I'm so good. One day, I'm going to fix that. In irony of ironies, I, the stream, I'm going to come chase you down. You're running, I'm going to follow. I'm going to send the fountain of living water to come catch you. One day, I promise. And then one day, God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the heart of the story. Jesus knew and knows perfect communion with God because he is God. It can't be any other way. He is God. And he's also a perfect man. He's human like we should be but aren't. And he never departed from God. He never ran from him. He never sinned. And he never brought God's right judgment upon himself. But he embraced the cross and bore the wrath of God for us anyway. For all who trust him. So that we who trust him, we could find a, a great exchange in life. We could find our death unto him and his life unto us. Our sin unto him, his righteous obedience unto us. All accomplished by him as a gift. Faith in Christ, crucified and risen, places a person in union with Christ and back into communion with God, alive again, forever. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the message. And that's what God appointed Paul to tell us, to tell you today, and to announce to all the world. Because God wants that known to you today and to all the world. And he wants it understood clearly. He he appointed Paul, it says, according to the promise. Well, the heart of that meeting means to deliver this message. But there's another way to think about the, the according to the promise. Like Paul's life just so uniquely fits in with what the message is about. Paul's life. Paul was not a goody two shoes nice guy. He was a hater and a persecutor and a killer to whom God gave life. 
This is a guy who knows very personally what it means to run and be chased down and caught and then can actually then can tell that message. If God had mercy on me, he'll have mercy on you. You're not too far gone. I don't know how far you've run. I ran farther. And he caught me and saved me and gave me life. He can for you too. Paul's called according. His life matches. It accords with this message. And then how he delivers it is... It's not with a sword in a powerful way. we got to get this right. We, we sometimes, we, in modern America, we sometimes think that Christianity in some way should be a powerful message. It's a laid down, humble, crucified message, as was Paul's life. Paul traveled the Roman wor- world preaching this message from a position of meek, humble vulnerability. We can look at Paul and we can hear the message. And we can look at Paul and we can see the message. This is for you. It's delivered humbly and openly to all the world. It's an offer that the world cannot refuse. But it's an offer that doesn't come at the point of a gun. It's an offer. This is the gospel meant to be delivered to us. And this is, as we're going to see throughout this book, this is what Paul is is acutely concerned about. Indeed, we talked about last week, job one is guard the message, but but right behind it, job two is and deliver it. Because God wants it known. Because God wants you to know him. And to know life. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. And you might add on there, dot, 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 and nowhere else. Which is one of the ways we need to think about applying this. Certainly part of the application is to see this is for me. I better respond to this and I better pass it out to others. It's for them too. Yeah, I I see that. But there's another way to think about this. I, we are life chasers. We're made for this. And we chase it in all kinds of crazy places. It's the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, dot, 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 and nowhere else. So, do you find yourself chasing it in other places? It's an invitation to come to Jesus. Or if you're a Christian, to come back. It's not found anywhere else. We, we have a tendency sometimes to, to, to say, like, I know, I know. And, and it, if you're a Christian, I'm telling you stuff that you know. And that, that's good. The Bible does it all the time to encourage you and lift you up and move your heart to follow him. But sometimes we can say, I know, and then look elsewhere. It's found in him only. Come back. Do you notice how you tend to seek this life, to chase it somewhere else, maybe even in tremendously religious ways? And I'm not just talking about all the other religions of the world. The life's not found in them either. It is only here in Jesus. But I'm talking about within the... Christian church, we can actually, ironically, still miss the life. 
seeking to do for Jesus rather than just be with him. You're confusing. But I attend church and I go to a, a community group and a discipleship group, both. And I put some money in the offering plate today and I'm uh, going to teach every third Sunday in the children's church and, I mean, I'm doing it, right? Well, you're doing those things, yeah, but are you finding life in communion with Jesus? Are you? Or are you just doing? I'm not saying don't do. I'm saying don't stop at the doing. It's a, an easy way to think about this is, is marriage. If, if you're married, you've got a, a spouse that sits opposite you, stands opposite you, lies next to you constantly, and you can't stop doing anything for that person. You can't just say, forget it. I'm not going to do anything else in relation to you ever. But we all know that's not relationship, just the doing. to talk with, to be open with, to listen to, to commune, to, to love, to give your heart to. That's a whole other issue. That's where the life in a marriage is found. That's where the life in relationship with Jesus is found. Don't settle for religion. Relate to Jesus and know this life. And don't chase it somewhere else in all the other stuff of the world. How often are we pursuing life in the things we can attain or can accomplish here? Relationships with other people, family and friends, seeking intimacy and connection. And, and all the ways that I described life earlier, a sense of, of rest and a sense of contentness, how many times do we pursue that in other people? Or your career, or your job, or your sport, or your hobby. We, we do that all the time. And those things may all be very good, but they cannot bear the weight they're, they're meant to be on top of and along with this, this rooted, abiding relationship with Jesus, not instead of. They can't bear the weight. They can't provide the life for us. The people die and move on, and the careers end, and all the travels and vacations start to feel alike, don't they? You notice it sometimes maybe when you get discontent or, or a little bit frustrated or you feel like, I need to like one-up this. in Jesus. The life that you were made for is a life of communing with God that happens in Jesus. God made that, promised it, kept it, and has announced it to you on purpose and wants the world to know because he wants you in relationship with him. That's the first observation what Paul's been sent to do and why and what's offered to us. And the second one flows out of that. The life that is in Christ is a life of grace, mercy, and peace forever. A life that is in Christ is a life of grace, mercy, and peace forever. So verse 2 continues like a normal letter to Timothy, my beloved child. Paul's much older than Timothy, and he's got this father-son relationship with him, and he, and he deeply cares for him, probably heightened by the fact that he knows he's about to die, and probably heightened by the fact that he knows that in putting Timothy in Ephesus, he's put him in a really tough spot that's been really hard on him. So he feels for him. 
Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace. You, you are who you are and you are where you are. But remember this, don't forget, you have what you have from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is all from God. This is, this is what flows from communing with God. A life of grace and mercy and peace. If you wanted to put one word over that, you could put the word love. But he teases it out to help us think a little bit about what, what, is it, what does it mean to, to have love from God to me? Well, it's love applied as grace, love applied as mercy, love applied as peace. Let's think about each of those words then. Grace, favor, blessing that you did not earn or deserve is not natural. That's what grace is. And it's true for Timothy that he stands as a recipient of grace, that God rests his hand on him in, in grace. True for him and true for everybody in this life. That we even know God and stand before him forgiven is his grace towards us. And then that we stand in that grace every moment of every day. Stand under, under a waterfall of God's favor. It's not just a stream. It's not just a fountain that bubbles up. It actually is like standing beneath a waterfall. You stand there and you get wet constantly and you never, grow, you never grow dry. His approach towards us is always one of grace, a giving of power for life, a wisdom for life, an assurance that all of life is in, is in his sovereign hand, that he's working it all out for our good. To be an object of his grace is a remarkable, beautiful, sweet reality. Talked about this some last week. I don't want to repeat everything that I said last week, but it's something that should never grow old for us. It's, it's the center of how God wants us to remember our relationship with Him. He's a God of grace towards us. We are always the people who enjoy this Him giving us so much that we do not deserve. Maybe this morning, particularly, that aspect of God's love towards you kind of grabs you. Do, you. do you need his grace this morning? Do you find yourself in a spot where I need? I need help. I need wisdom. I need, I need your influence. I need your guidance. I need your assurance. I need a reminder of your sovereign control. I need your grace. And part of relating to Jesus is to say that very thing to him. In prayer, Lord, help. Remind me of your grace and pour out your grace on my life in these situations here and draw me to trust you. He's a God of grace and mercy. Paul next reminds him of mercy, which is a little interesting because grace and peace, the first and last word, Grace and peace are fairly common words in greetings 
They're common words in Paul's greetings, but he never uses mercy other than when he's talking to Timothy. The only times that Paul says grace, mercy, and peace are 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, years apart, same recipient. Perhaps because he knew something of his situation and knows, I think you need to remember this, mercy. Maybe this morning, you need to remember this, mercy. It's Mercy and grace are close. Mercy and grace are similar words, but they're a little different in this way in that mercy is, is more of a dealing with something removing of something, answering something that you did deserve that was natural, that did happen and was hard. So grace is the giving, mercy is the taking. If you put it real simple. Mercy is the kindness of God towards his people in failure and in trouble and in heartache. It's his approach towards them in their weakness and in their sin and in their suffering and in their confusion and in their difficulty. Mercy intervenes in your life. Mercy from God intervenes in your life to address your sorrow. Particularly your pain. It's when God shows his compassionate face towards you. When God draws near to wipe away the tear, it's mercy. We're all sinners still. We, we, we are, we're never going to get away from that. We're never going to get away from making a mess of our lives. We're never going to get away from failure and, and folly and we're never going to get out of this world that's broken and hard. And the particular sweetness of, of being reminded of this word is that, that all through that reality that you can't ever get away from, that God's never going to so powerfully, graciously intervene that in this world you leave trouble, and we will leave the world of trouble, but in this world we're going to have trouble. And and then in that trouble, God wants to say, but I'm the God for you of mercy. So when my hand approaches you, it's approaching you not to slap, but to comfort, to wipe away the tear, to, to lift up the chin and look you in the eyes and say, I'm here. We need it in different times in different ways. And and probably, for me, this isn't one of the words that most resonates with me. I, I, I probably more resonate with grace. But I think some, maybe like Timothy, some of us in some situations really need to hear that God is not just the king who reigns and who powerfully intervenes to control all the things for his ends and purposes. But he's also the God who is on, on knee, tender and approaching, and look you in the eye and wipe away the tears and say it's okay and hold you when you weep. That's also God. God of mercy. I don't know when or if you need that, but if you need that, that's the life that he gives. And only he gives. It's a God of mercy to you. 
and the God of peace. Peace from God is a sweet, multi-layered reality. It starts first with what we've been talking about already with the cross, to make peace with God himself. To wipe away sin and deal with anger and wrath forever. So in the cross, God has made peace with us. But I think what he means to remind Timothy of here and us is not just the, the once and for all peace, but what flows out of that. A peace in the heart with God and therefore then a peace with the circumstances, the peace with the other people, and the peace with my own self that I need to hear about and walk in day by day by day by day by day. To be at peace with God, to know the God of mercy, to know the God of grace, all those words really put us under This is the God who is the God of love for you in Christ. And he's the God who is. We vacillate back and forth often between thinking, I don't need God, I got it all taken care of. On the other hand, I am an orphan in need, abandoned by God. We move back and forth between those And different ones of these words answer different situations and circumstances. But above them all, God wants to say, I'm the one who is. I'm the one you need. I made a way to find life in me. So come. This is the God that at the end of his life, Paul said, he must be known by you and by the world. So here's, here's the message. This is, this is a lot of what 2 Timothy is going to be about. Joining with him in, in knowing, living, and suffering for the announcing of this message. But we have to start with personally experiencing it. Church, this is your God who gives you life in Christ and who causes you to live under his love in grace and mercy and at peace. Let me pray. Father, we look to you in hope that given the fact that you made this message and that you then raised up Paul to announce it and that you brought it to us here, our hope is then, our belief is then that you want it to take root in us and bear fruit. So that's what we pray for. Cause this to take root in us and bear fruit. Show us Jesus and draw us to him. 
Give us the help that we need, whatever help we need, to walk in newness of life with him now. And in the coming weeks, Lord, would you move us to be more effective and more faithful and more winsome and just better proclaimers of this message for your honor and for the good of other people. We trust ourselves to you and say thank you. Help us to walk in life, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.